It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. On August 28th, 2003, in a parking lot of the sleepy town of Erie, Pennsylvania, a commotion unfolded. Police officers stood behind their cars, their guns all pointed toward the center of the scene. In the middle of the chaos sat 46-year-old Brian Wells, visibly distressed by the large mechanism protruding beneath his shirt. Attached to his neck was a timed pipe bomb that produced a rapidly accelerating beeping noise. Brian squirmed and pleaded for law enforcement to remove the device. The beeping continued, getting faster and faster, until... I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. What should have been a routine pizza delivery for driver Brian Wells turned fatal in a matter of hours. But just as shocking as his bizarre death were the moments that led up to it. Brian was finishing his shift at Mama Mia's Pizzeria when a call came in for two sausage and pepperoni pizzas. Brian then took the delivery to 8631 Peach Street, an address which led to a television transmission tower at the end of a long dirt road. It was at this hidden location where a group of individuals forced Brian to wear the complicated collar bomb. Brian was given nine lengthy pages of instructions, which laid out detailed plans for a bank robbery, as well as a dangerous scavenger hunt for him to follow in order to remove the ticking time bomb. At 2.30 p.m. that day, armed with a cane gun and the explosive, Brian entered a PNC bank near Upper Peach Street. It was there that he calmly presented instructions demanding $250,000 from the bank teller. Because the manager wasn't present, the bank teller could only give Brian $8,702. He took a lollipop from the counter as he exited the bank. Minutes later, Authorities arrived at the scene and quickly apprehended Brian, clearing pedestrians from the scene. Brian then told police a narrative alleging that a group of African-American men had abducted him and forced him to play a role in the bank heist, or else they would kill him. But as police waited for the bomb squad to inspect and detach the device, it would be too late. At 3.18 p.m., the collar bomb detonated and killed Brian Wells. Law enforcement had a big mystery on their hands. Who was the group behind this deadly plot? How was Brian Wells involved? Jerry Clark was the special agent who was assigned to be the lead investigator for FBI Major Case Number 203. 
what is now remembered as the collar bomb case. Today, he takes us through the many twists and turns that unfolded within this investigation, beginning with how he was first introduced to this complex case. So just like uh, every other notification that I got on bank robberies, it was usually over the air, you know, uh, that a bank robbery had occurred. We call them in the FBI 91s, and bank robberies that are armed are 91A. So, hey, we got a 91A new that's at 7200 Peach Street near Pennsylvania. And this one sounded a little different, though, because they said potential uh, IED involved or potential bomb that the individual had worn into the bank. So right away, I knew this one sounded different, although I had been to numerous bank robberies where there were bank or, or hoax devices used during the bank robbery. So you know, flares taped together to look like a bomb. Or one time I had a binocular case with an antenna sticking out and it turned out they were, they were fake, but this one sounded a little different. And uh, so I immediately, you know, reported to the scene. When I got to the scene, he was already placed under arrest. That's who we know now to be Mr. Wells, who had robbed the bank uh, saying he had a device and needed $250,000 in cash which again is very different from most bank robberies to ask for that much amount of money. And so I immediately saw how close I was to him, realized I was too close in the position I took, moved around to a better position where I could get the overhear with the Pennsylvania State Police, who had done a beautiful felony car stop uh, with the subject only hundreds of yards from the bank. Can so you can you describe response. for us what that scene looked like, what that bomb looked like, and how close those Pennsylvania State Troopers were? You know, as you so you come up, he had been felony car stop. Describe all that for us so we can picture it. Sure. So once Mr. Wells, who we knew now was the the robber of the bank, exited the bank, what was also unique about this case was immediately there was a nine one one call made by a witness who was in the bank. And so you don't normally get him that quick. And it was, he's saying, I'm watching the guy. He got into his car, he's left the bank and he's going around the side of the McDonald's. And so it was that, that quick of a response for the Pennsylvania state police who immediately dispatched troopers and a car arrived, saw a vehicle matching Brian Wells's vehicle description and basically, you know, light siren lit him up, stopped him. And then asked him to exit the vehicle slowly, uh, get down on his on his knees, and that's when they made the approach. And they approached him, handcuffed him behind his back, and then started having a conversation about what it was that he had, which he said was a bomb. And what did that look like? What did this bomb look like on him? So shortly thereafter, I arrive on scene, and one of the troopers to his credit, uh, actually took his knife and cut his shirt, Mr. Wells's shirt, because he had a shirt on that said guest jeans on the front and a port, you know, big, huge protrusion underneath it. But we didn't know exactly what it was. But when he cut his shirt on the side and peeled it back, he saw the device. And he was really the only person had seen that device before that uh, bomb had detonated, but he immediately withdrew, you know, took a, a position of cover, just like he would 
bond squad had already been notified and was en route. And then that's when I set up my position and conversation then took place between the troopers and Mr. Wells. And can you describe what that device looked like? So we immediately knew that it was a collar that looked very much like a, a large handcuff that had ratcheted around his neck and then wouldn't open back up. Uh, and then the collar held a box underneath his chin with what looked like four keyholes, and it actually turned out to be four keyholes, and then a box that held the device hanging on the middle of his chest. And it just, you know, was one of those things where you're thinking, is this possible that this is real? And certainly you have to take every step to believe that it is. And that's what we did by calling the bomb squad. And at what point before it actually detonated, did you realize or did law enforcement realize it was real? Because your point, so, you, so the trooper cuts his shirt, sees it, immediately backs up, everyone clears, the bomb squad is already in. But to your point, there's a, there's a certain amount of appreciation that this could probably just be posturing. So at what point was it visually seeing it then? At what point did law enforcement realize this is real? That's the interesting part, and it's a part I'll never forget because it still sticks in my mind And all these years later. Right before the detonation, we hear a faint beep, 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 and the troopers and I, you know, everybody realizes something's up. And Mr. Wells turns uh, his body just a little bit sideways, and then, boom, the bomb goes off. And it was an immediate, you know, oh, my God, uh, you know, surreal moment because, like I said, you'd been to a number where, you know, they were posturing going on and it really wasn't a device. And so this had never happened before. It had never happened in the history of the FBI where an individual wearing a live device walks into a bank, robs it, the device detonates during the course of the robbery and results in death. It had just never happened. Nobody had ever seen it. Nobody, and to this day, thank God, we haven't seen it again. But I'll just never forget 318, that's for sure. And what did that explosion look like for the troopers surrounding and the cars and the law enforcement and the bomb squad that had been arriving? Describe that scene during those moments and after. So right after the device detonates, Mr. Wells, who was on his knees and, and sort of sitting on his legs, fell backwards onto his back. And I was watching this so closely because I was so close. His chest went down and it never came back up. So I immediately knew it was a fatal situation. Um, and the troopers, just like any law enforcement, because we're so curious, we want to run up and see you know, hey, what just happened? But that's the absolute worst thing to do with an IED because, you know, you certainly uh, don't know if there's a secondary device. So we were able to gather our wits, yell secondary, secondary, and everybody retreated back to their positions, held those positions. And at that time, the bomb squad, who was just uh, suited up, then they made the approach and actually went up to Mr. Wells. How long after he had been pulled over did the device detonate? So he had been pulled over at 
probably uh, right around three o'clock, a little bit before. So there was probably about 18 minutes where we were having conversation and waiting for, you know, the squad to arrive because our bomb squad in Erie is sort of a, a, a Erie Police Department uh, squad. And so they had to come from the city where where we were located was actually about 15, 20 minutes south of where that was. And so we were waiting for them to arrive when when the device detonated. And when it detonated, did it shatter windows? Was there secondary damage or injuries or was it um, contained enough that Mr. Wells was the only impacted individual? It was contained enough that it only impacted Mr. Wells, although you could feel the percussion mm. and certainly things flying in the air from the device detonating were landing you know, everywhere and you could hear them hitting the pavement. It was really amazing. And I, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, you know, because now certainly this is a huge crime scene because everything in that area has to be collected so that we can put this device back together to see how it was made and how it operated. When you say things, do you mean parts of the device or do you mean parts of him? Mostly parts of the device. Uh, everything in the device, which we later determined was made by the bomb builder to go inward. So there was even a scored back metal plate. Uh, scoring means that you try to cut, you know, deep lines in it so that it would create shrapnel going inward. Oh. And that's exactly what it did. It actually went inward, uh, but piece of the device went outward. So it was mostly device that was flying in the air. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. So what did Wells share with law enforcement during those 18 minutes before the bomb detonated? And then what did law enforcement do from there with that information? Sure. So he immediately started in the, in the great question that was asked uh, was, Hey, how did you get in this position? Yeah, that's a great question in my mind, you know, because it doesn't take for granted that you know anything about it, but we want to know how in your words you got here. He said, I'm a pizza delivery driver and I was delivering a pizza to the tower site location on upper peach and a group of individuals accosted me and forced me to wear this device and go rob the bank. And the other great questions were, well, then describe these individuals to us, right? And he couldn't. And immediately we started thinking, wow, that's interesting. You know, you, you have uh, people that you would think got close enough. You obviously put a device around your neck that you'd be able to have some sort of description. And all he would say is a group of black individuals. And immediately, again, the description was unable to be provided. And it just sounded like sort of a made up story. So then we were saying, well, you know, how, how, and what did you do? And he said, I did what they told me. And I, and I got to this spot. Then he was asking questions that were sort of, you know, unrelated in some ways, you know, can I have a cigarette? Hey, did you call my boss? I work at Mama Mia's. You should call him. 
it, it, it was just sort of interesting, the conversation. And I'm a psychology nut and, and background in psychology. And so I always watch what people do, you know, more even than what they say. Uh, and then try to figure out why they say it. That to me is the interesting part in investigation. Um, and it just wasn't making sense at all. So can I ask you, given your psychology interest, did his demeanor during those 18 minutes imply that he thought this bomb would detonate and that he was terrified? Or did it convey, you know, something else other than that? That's the great question, Emily. It really is. And it, it, it truly is. He was so calm. He would have never been characterized as somebody that you thought had a live device that was going to detonate at any second. You, he was asking uh, about, you know, again, a cigarette and, and, you know, boy, this is heavy. Can you come get this thing off of me? But he never really gave us the indication that, you know, of panic. And even in the bank, the witnesses were saying that he walked into the bank very calmly, actually stood on line, which a bank robber wouldn't normally do, right? Then he finally went around somebody, handed the teller a note, reached in the teller counter basket and pulled out a lollipop. So I've got pictures from the inside of the bank where he has a lollipop he's sucking on while he's robbing the bank with a, with a device. So to answer your question, none of those actions indicated to me that he felt it was real. And I, I to this day, don't believe that he really knew it was until maybe the very end. So he shares that story. And then what further information does he share about that? So he shares and kept saying over and over, aren't you going to try to come get this thing off of me? You know, he, he pulled the key and started a timer. I, I heard the thing ticking, but he wasn't, again, he wasn't saying it in a, in a very rushed or, or crazed manner. And, and so we kept thinking, boy, I don't know, you know, if this is possible, but you, again, you have to believe that it is. And you go through all the steps that you do as an investigator to make sure you're putting everything in place to try to save his life if it was, but it just happened that the timing mechanism in the device struck and, and closed the circuit, uh, detonating the device before we could get anybody there. So then what else did he share that enabled you to proceed on your next action item? So immediately, once he said, hey, I'm a pizza delivery driver at Mamma Mia's Pizzeria in Erie, we had troopers and agents heading that way. And we're actually at the pizza shop gathering information on the phone call, what time the phone call ordering the pizzas came in, where it was ordered to, and uh, we're immediately doing that. And then in the meantime, we're trying to figure out as much as we can about him while we're sitting and talking to him. So we had already started things in place as quickly as we could, uh, but didn't get very far until, you know, the device detonated. So what other information did he share about being forced into this explosive device? While we're having a discussion with Mr. Wells, he also tells us that he is supposed to go on a series of stops to obtain keys to unlock the collar around his neck and to get the device off. While he couldn't do that because we had him certainly under arrest and then once the bomb detonated, we were able to 
find out the locations of the stops through the notes that he had. And that was the other unique thing about this case. There were nine total pages of bank robbery notes, which is incredible. You know, you normally you have it written on a deposit slip or something. Nine total pages. So there were pages of notes for Wells and instructions for things he was to do, go on some stops and go into different locations to receive keys on the side of the road. There were notes to the police telling us, hey, you're not going to figure this out in an hour, so don't bother following us or we'll retaliate. There were notes to the bank employees on what they were to do in order to get $250,000 to put it into a bag. It was really detailed, far beyond what anything I had ever seen with notes. And were these so, typewritten or handwritten? They were handwritten notes, and it took us a long time to figure it out. But basically, these notes were typed on a typewriter, and then another piece of paper was put over top, and they traced it so that you couldn't detect their handwriting. And that was really one of the only intelligent things that they did in this thing, quite honestly, because the scheme was way overcooked and way too deep and detailed. Um, but the notes were very, very intriguing. And we actually utilized our BAU unit, our behavioral analysis unit at uh, Quantico to read over the notes for both content and context to see what was in it, to see what dialect. And by the way, there were several things in there that turned out to be very interesting to us to help us decide you know, who might have been involved in this. The, the interesting part of that is the brilliant minds. And, and again, what people do and how they say it is, is so fascinating in true crime. And it's how cases get solved. It's those little details that really make things work. And I just can't give law enforcement enough credit in what they do every day to keep us safe and secure out there. It just, I'm just, I'm so thrilled to be a part of that as a career and so proud of that because they really work hard for all of us. So um, let's set the scene a little bit. So yeah. this guy walks into a bank, nonchalantly he stands in line. He's wearing a t-shirt with a protruding object underneath. He hands notes to the teller, who then demanding 250K, the teller informs him, the manager's out. This is all I can get. He, he enjoys a lollipop while he's waiting. Then he exits the bank and a witness calls 911. He's apprehended almost immediately. And to everyone's surprise, 18 minutes later, that improvised explosive device around his neck detonates and he perishes. Not before he is shared with law enforcement, I was abducted and a group of people told me, essentially, you have to go on a scavenger hunt to obtain the keys that will unlock this. And he shares with you notes written for law enforcement that say, don't try to find us. We're smarter than you, but you are smarter than them. So how then does law enforcement proceed and what does that investigation look like as you are trying to track down what group of people or what person did this to this pizza delivery guy and why? Yeah, it, it, it was so unbelievable a scene. So when you think of the chaos that ensues after, you know, a device detonates in a very crowded area of the city, uh, immediately, of course, you're going to shut off both ends of the, of the road. You're going to start collecting evidence. 
you're going to then obtain enough information to do a search warrant at Brian Wells's residence to see if you can uh, obtain any information there. You're then going to go to all the sites that Mr. Wells was to go to on the scavenger hunt to see what you find there. And we immediately did that. That was fascinating in its own right, because when we went to those sites, and by the way, we had to use very extreme caution because we didn't know if there were trip wires or snipers or booby traps at any of these sites. And the first site we went to that Mr. Wells was to go to, we went into the woods where he was supposed to go. We obtained a Folgers jar that unscrewed with another note in it. And that note told him to get back on the highway, go to another stop, which we did. He couldn't, obviously. And at that site, there was another orange piece of tape, just like at the first one with the Folgers jar. But the tape was torn and there was nothing at that site. So we don't know, even to this day, really, if that was his terminal site where he was to end or if there was another set of notes there that somebody got before we got there. And by the way, we know somebody was there trying to, uh, to get to that site before we did. And we found that out later. So the one thing that the audience needs to know, though, is that at all the sites we went to, that Wells was supposed to obtain keys to get the collar off, there were never any keys found, which tells you that that device was never coming off of his neck and that they had made it so wherever he was in that scavenger hunt, when the timing mechanism went off, it was going to detonate and he was going to, he was going to be killed. So simultaneously, you are obtaining the search warrant for his house and exploring that final pizza delivery order that he got. So what were the results of both of those? So the results of those were very important. Number one, we knew that the call coming in, ordering those two pizzas that he went on the delivery to obtain the device came from a gas station in between where the bank was and where the tower site was that he delivered the pizzas. So we know it came from a payphone at a shell station and we obtained that payphone. Uh, we actually sawed the whole thing off at the ground, flew it to Quantico, because of course you're gonna look for hairs, fibers, DNA, you know, uh, fingerprints, any, any sort of physical uh, forensic evidence that you can find in it. And then we know that that happened, that that call came in at 1.30 ordering those pizzas. So we had the subscriber of who it belonged to, which was the Shell Station, and we had uh, certainly the payphone with the evidence that we hoped to get out of it. We then did the search warrant at Brian Wells's, didn't find anything of any value uh, related to the device, However, we found two notebooks on his desk in his office or in his uh, living room that had the name of every person he knew on it. And it would only fill one page of paper. It had his family on it and it had a bunch of different, um, like his, his uh, mechanic or his dentist. And then it had two names of two females, Jessica and Angie. And we did a subscriber check on those. We determined both of their identities and determined that both had criminal histories, 
with multiple arrests for prostitution. So we knew that Brian Wells had two known prostitutes from our area in his own handwriting uh, in his desk. So now we want to find them because they become very interesting to us. And we tracked them both down and began interviewing them. And what did you learn from them? The one thing that we learned was one of them, Jessica, who becomes very, very important in this case, uh, indicates to us that she knew Brian Wells and that he used to uh, solicit her uh, for, you know, prostitution. And he also would drive her around so she could purchase crack cocaine. And Jessica was always in a state of horrific addiction. So every time we tried to interview Jessica, she, she was barely lucid enough to get any information. And we would take her to different, you know, facilities and sites to try to get her help. You know, we take her to a clinic, we take her to the hospital and she would last a day, a week, two weeks, and then out she'd go and right back onto the street doing her trade. And so it was very challenging interviewing her. But the main thing that was so important that he drove her around to buy crack becomes hugely important in this case. So then we end up finding a, or receiving a call, I should say. So this happens on a Thursday, August 28, 2003. The bank robbery, the detonation. Three days later, that Sunday, we get a call, never forget it, because I had hardly gone home for those three days anyway that a second pizza delivery driver from the same Mamma Mia's Pizzeria was now deceased in his mother's house from an apparent drug overdose. Now you're saying, and I was, uh, as the lead investigator for the FBI, wow, how coincidental is this? You know, there is no such thing as coincidence in homicide, right? Uh, that two pizza delivery drivers from the same shop, dead within three days. So we immediately started looking into Robert Panetti, the second deceased driver. And we find out that the day that Brian Wells robbed the bank and the detonation happened, our team went to interview him, Robert Panetti, at the pizza shop. And he said, listen, I'm on a shift. I, I, I got too much going on. Can you come back and see me on Monday? Monday never came. You know, he was dead Sunday night. So now you start to think, all right, how's this involved? And why is he now dead? And that becomes part of this whole mystery uh, and the unraveling of this onion. Like I said, it was just incredible. Because then three weeks later, we receive another call, 911. Bill Rothstein on the phone saying, my name's Bill Rothstein. I'm driving around Erie. I'm in my van. I have a gun. I'm going to commit suicide. Mm. But I need to tell you that in the freezer in my garage is a dead body. And the 911 operator is like, whoa, you know, say that again slowly. You know, what are you, what are you saying? I've got a dead body in the freezer in my garage. And his name is James Roden and his girlfriend, Marjorie Deal Armstrong, killed him. 
So again, you're thinking this is another one of these things. Is this even possible that this is true? So Sunday, another search warrant, right? Because you don't even want to go in the house without a search warrant. Go in to Bill Rothstein's house. And by the way, why this is interesting to me as the pizza bomber case agent is because it is directly next door to the tower site where Brian Wells delivered the pizzas. So 8631 Peach Street, 8645 Peach Street, they, all, they almost share a driveway. So the fact that those were so close, I'm thinking something's going on here too. Another coincidence that just can't be happening. So we do the search warrant, we open the freezer, and there in this long chest freezer is something wrapped in plastic. And uh, it's, again, one of those things where you just say, this, this is unbelievable. So we could not get the body, which we believed was a body, because that's what Rothstein said it was, out of the freezer because it was so frozen. So we had to unplug the freezer, put it in a van, take it to the coroner's office, and that thing sat for four or five days before it thawed enough to get the body out. Sure enough, it was a body of an individual identified as James Roden, who we now know was Marjorie Deal Armstrong's boyfriend at the time. Marjorie Deal Armstrong was then arrested for her involvement in the murder of James Roden. During yeah. that time, because the reason you knew about the body and got the search warrant was because Rothstein called you, you said, from his van with suicidal ideation. So did someone also deploy to find him, an, a negotiator to talk him down? And what was the resolution of that? Because that was simultaneous, I would think, with you guys going to the dead body site, right? Absolutely true. We received the call from Bill Rothstein. He happened to know one of the troopers on station and said, can I talk to Trooper Morgan? Trooper Morgan got on the phone. He then convinced him to come to the barracks and turn himself in. Okay. Not to commit suicide. So Bill Rothstein turns himself in, goes to the barracks, and that's where I was able to go interview him related to his knowledge of the tower site being right next door to, uh, to his house. So they obviously, Pennsylvania State Police, were interested in Bill Rothstein because of what he knew about the dead body in his freezer. I was interested in what he knew about what he saw about the tower site immediately next door. That's one of those interviews, Emily, I'll never forget because, again, in this job, if you do it long enough, you interview so many people. And I walked into the room. He's in a holding room at the Pennsylvania State Police Barracks. And I said, hey, Bill Rothstein, I'm Jerry Clark from the FBI. Do you mind if I talk to you a second? And I'll never forget. He said, sure, I'll talk to you, but I need to tell you I'm the smartest guy in this room. And I thought, you know, I'm looking around going, it's only you and me, Bill. I said, so that's fine. I'm fine with that. I hear that every night at home, so don't worry about <laughs> it. And that's how we talk. I mean, and, and again, that's where that psychology helps because – Anybody else, you know, might get challenging with them. I knew that I had an absolute narcissist mm -hmm. in front of me. And so I'm going to massage this guy's ego. And so I start immediately by telling, hey, tell me 
what did, what did you see at the tower site? Have you ever seen anybody go back? Oh, no, I never see anybody go back there. I never go back there myself. I don't know anything. Do you know anything about the Wells case? No, I don't know anything about the Wells case. And I knew I had that instinctual feel that he obviously was not telling me the truth, but I knew he wasn't going to tell me either. So then I said, all right, how can I work on a narcissist? And that's by telling him, Bill, I need your help, right? I'm, I'm just really, I'm, I'm, I'm just at a loss here. I don't know what to do. And he's going, what are you talking about? I said, I got these questions about Brian Wells. I just can't figure them out. And I could see that I was just, you know, jabbing at his ego. And he said, well, I don't know anything about it. And I said, well, Bill, hypothetically, can we do hypothetically? And he said, yeah, yeah. What do you, what do you want? And I said, why wouldn't Brian Wells go when he gets this collar put around his neck? Why wouldn't he go right to a police department and say, get this thing off me? Why does he go rob the bank? I said, I, I, I don't understand that. And he goes, hypothetically? And I said, yeah, hypothetically. He said, well, what if they told him that there were wires in the collar and that if he veered off course, he'd get a shock? Mm. And I, oh my God, Emily, I was slid out of my chair because I knew that there were wires in the collar. Mm. Now the wires in the collar went to nowhere and did nothing. But the fact that he knew there were wires in the collar, at least thought that, you know, mentioned that there were wires, just completely blew me away. So that's when I said, okay, I, I, I've got something here. So I said, Bill, I got another question. I said, because I never know much about bombs. I never made a bomb. How would you even go about making a bomb? And he said, well, hypothetically? I said, yeah, hypothetically. He said, well, I cut the tops off of shotgun shells and pour the black powder into a pipe and use that black powder for the, for the powder, for the bomb. And I said, wow, Bill, why would you do that? And he said, because if you buy black powder in bulk, sometimes they put taggets, they're called taggets, and they're, they're traceable to ATF where you could trace black powder to where it came from. And I'm sitting there going, I knew from my lab they had told me that the black powder in this was smokeless-based black powder that came from shotgun shells. Now, again, only that's singular nature, right? You're an attorney, right? You know, you're thinking in your mind, who else knows that but the, the people that know? And so I thought, this is it. This guy exactly knows what's going on here. And I'm 100% I'm convinced when I walk out of that room, that this guy has knowledge of this case. And what about the phrase, I'm the smartest guy in the room? What additional impact did that have on you, given the letter that the perps had written to law enforcement? And that goes back again to that content and context. You're right on it. And it basically says the writer of this note and these nine pages of notes was a true narcissist. They were always explaining things like they were talking down to you. They were condescending. They were rude. They were arrogant. And that was the guy I'm interviewing on September 21st, 2003. And that's Bill Rossi. He was arrogant to, like nobody I had ever met. He talked down to me. He, and, and, and I said, well, I'm just a, you know, a dumb cop agent. You know, I don't know what I'm doing here. Bill, help me. And again, 
if you get challenging to that, like, well, you're no smarter than me, you know, I'm smarter than you, and you get in this back and forth, that's that's a distraction technique, right? That's somebody taking you off track from what you really want to know from them. And that's where I didn't go with them. I didn't care that he was smarter than me. I was hoping he felt he was smarter than me because that would then lead me to get information from him, which I thought would be helpful to the case. During that time, were you like, notwithstanding the information transfer that is occurring regarding the bomb, you are still sitting in front of him because he had suicide, reported suicidal ideation and a dead body in his freezer. So were you like, what's, you know, did you have to block out that local situation for a second? Did you think it was related to the bomb case? How did that play into this conversation and into your analysis as the lead agent? Yeah, at that time, I wasn't sure how the body in the freezer linked to the case. I really wasn't at that point. And that what it was, was really my job because, you know, you know, jurisdiction in cases is quite challenging. And if you think about the pizza delivery site, okay, where Brian Wells worked, you think about where he robbed the bank, those are the same jurisdiction. But then where the second pizza delivery driver dies is a different jurisdiction. That's going to be uh, Erie Police. And then where the uh, tower site is, that's a different jurisdiction. So I'm looking at it like, wow, I have three dead people here now within three weeks. My job as the FBI agent and the, and the lead of the whole case is to tie all those into one, if they were indeed one case. But when I talked to him, even though I didn't know the body in the freezer, how it was linked, I knew that Bill was linked because of what he was saying and how he was saying it to me. Mm -hmm. So I knew that was related. Now it's my job to figure out, all right, what evidence can I put into this case to the prosecutors to help them understand that all three of these are related? And that, that was a chore. Now, you said that subsequent to that conversation, the girlfriend of the frozen dead body was arrested for that murder. How did you know that? Did Rostin tell you that in that conversation? Otherwise, how did you learn that and proceed? Yeah. So that's a great question because immediately you would think, well, it's in his house. You know, he must have some involvement in this. But as it turned out, he was saying, and he threw Marjorie Deal Armstrong right under the bus. He said, Marjorie killed him. She, he killed, she killed him at her house, which again was another jurisdiction, 7th and Bacon, streets in Erie here. And he said, she called me to move the body. And their plan was to put the body in a freezer till it was frozen solid, cut it up with a chainsaw and then put it in an ice crusher and then deliver the pieces all throughout the County as they're throwing it out the window so that nobody would ever have a body as evidence. So he was doing his role to help her. And he moved the body from her house to his house, along with thousands of pounds of evidence. And then he was starting to take evidence to the landfill, 4,000 pounds at a time, 4,000 here on one trip, another trip. And we found receipts from the landfill saying that he did. And that gave us enough probable, well, not us, because of, actually it was a state homicide case. It wasn't yet linked to the pizza bomber case, the state police arrested Marjorie Deal Armstrong and the Erie police arrested her for the death of the 
uh, James Roden in the freezer. What were that's the thousands of pounds of evidence? What, what weighed that much? So he actually took everything that had blood on it from her house and was destroying it. So what Marjorie Deal Armstrong did was buy a 12-gauge shotgun out of the classified ads from a private citizen, loaded the gun, shot James Roden two times while he slept on the bed. The bed had blood on it. The floor had blood on it. So Bill Rothstein took the mattress, the bed, any furniture that had blood, tore up flooring, the steps, because he actually put poor James Roden in some plastic and then drug him down the steps because it was a second floor of a house where he was shot. And then blood was coming out and it was on the walls and the steps. So all that, all that he took out of her house and was disposing of it uh, one, one piece at a time. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. What was the motive and what was the relationship between Marjorie and Rothstein that he would undergo such great lengths to help her dispose of the body in such a messy and, frankly, sort of ridiculous way? It, it, it still, to this day, it, it, it shocks me because she called him and, and, and asked him to do that. When we asked him, why would you ever help her do that? And he said, well, you know, she was a friend of mine. And then we started looking at the history all the way back to the 70s, they were engaged at one point to be married, and, and then they had not ever gone that far, but they separated, but they always remained friends. But that really, in my mind, wasn't enough of a driver to get you to do something like that. So I always felt that there were more, there was more there, and there was more there, because as it turned out, James Roden had a role in what the plan was for the whole pizza bomber plot. James Roden one night gets in a fight with Marjorie Deal Armstrong and says, you know what? I'm going to go to the police about that bank you're talking about robbing. And she said, that's not going to happen. And so she planned and, and killed him. So that's why Bill Rothstein felt the urge to help her, you know, dispose of the body because if you look at the whole big plot of it all, that becomes an important role for Mr. Rothstein to help out with. And with all due respect for the deceased individual, I keep picturing in my mind like that scene from The Goonies, which is just, you know, the, the house and the body and the garbage bag and the frozen and just sort of how ludicrous the entire thing is, especially their plan. So meanwhile, what has been also on ice, no pun intended, was the overdose of the second delivery driver, right? We set him aside for the second while you talked about Rossi and Marjorie and um, Rodin. So then what happens next? For you so guys? the main thing is we didn't know after that third day when, when poor Mr. Robert Panetti dies of the overdose, we're still working on that, trying to figure out how that's related to Brian Wells and the robbing of the bank. Then the three weeks later happens and Bill Rothstein turns in the body in the freezer. We're working on that. But now we have another person to interview, which would be Marjorie Deal Armstrong. And we go in to see Marjorie Deal Armstrong, and she asks for an attorney. So obviously her rights are, are not waived. We could not talk to her. And she 
is declared incompetent to stand trial. So she's sent away for restoration to competence. So I could not interview her from 2003, when we know about her in September 21st, all the way until 2005, when she's finally declared competent to stand trial. She's restored to competence. By the way, the two prongs of competence, you're the attorney, but are dusky. And, and the dusky standard, you have to be able to assist in your own defense, and you have to be able to understand the proceedings against you. Well, she could certainly understand the proceedings. She knew it better than the lawyers and the judge. She didn't, however, meet the, or satisfy the prong of assisting in her own defense. She kept trying to fire her attorney. She wouldn't cooperate. And that prong was led, that, that led the judge to the incompetence. Uh, when she finally was able to assist, they restored her to competence. They brought her back. She pled guilty to killing James Roden, her boyfriend, and was sentenced to seven to 20 years, which was a really, in my mind, a very, very light sentence, right, for, for doing that. But here's sort of why. If you know Marjorie Deal Armstrong, you know that she's killed before, and she's killed multiple people, and she's a fascinating, uh, in fact, she's another book that we wrote, Mania and Marjorie Deal Armstrong, Inside the Mind of a Female Serial Killer, that book details her specifically and how she got to what she did. She shot a boyfriend six times in the 80s and was acquitted for a battered girlfriend spouse syndrome. So she beat that. Um, she then hit another, her husband in the head with a baseball bat, uh, said he fell and hit a coffee table. Drove him to the hospital. He died there three days later. They never knew how he died. She said he, you know, he fell. And she also was involved in certainly the deaths of Wells, Panetti, and Roden. So she's killed at least five or responsible for at least five men, which classified her certainly as a female serial killer. So Marjorie Deal Armstrong, when she's declared competent, comes back and pleads, now I can interview her. And I mean, I'm on the highway it's like a five-hour ride to where she was at a state correctional institution. We went and we interviewed her. And I'll never forget interviewing her either because uh, I had known Marjorie Deal Armstrong. I was an FBI agent in Erie, but I was sent away. You know, I was in a, a bunch of different cities before I finally got sent back to my home, you know, in Erie as a, well, really the Pittsburgh division, Erie RA for the FBI. So before I was an FBI agent, I happened to be a parole officer that started my whole career in law enforcement. And I had Marjorie on, not for the homicide of that boyfriend she shot the first one, but for having a gun because she was acquitted, but for having a gun that was unregistered. So she was actually put on probation and I had her on intensive supervision for that gun charge. So when I went to see her, I had known her and I had known of how just incredibly difficult she was going to be. And I'll never forget, we walked into this place down under the old, old, some of these um, state institutions, very old facilities. And here she comes, you know, and I hear her and I'm going, oh my God, I'm a little intimidated myself. And here, you know, I've been at this for a while, but I knew her and she came in and she saw me. I don't think she recognized me because she didn't say anything. 
until later on. But I said, Marge, hi, Jerry Clark, Jason Wick. We're here to uh, interview you about the, the pizza bomber case, the Wells case. And she said, I'm not telling you anything about that case unless you move me closer to Erie. And I thought, well, I'm a federal agent. You're in a state charge, but I'll see what I can do. Uh, and as we were walking out the door, she said, you better check on a guy named Ken Barnes. And I thought, wow, Ken Barnes, that sounds like an interesting name. We go back to Erie. We start to do some check. Ken Barnes was known to be a crack dealer in town. And we go back to, wow, where did we have crack in this case? But the prostitute, Jessica getting driven around to buy crack cocaine. So we go back to Jessica. Jessica, take us to every place you bought and Brian Wells took you to buy crack cocaine. She drives us to 617 Perry Street, Ken Barnes's house. So now we know Marjorie knows Ken Barnes. Ken Barnes knows Jessica. Jessica brings Brian Wells. They all know Bill Rothstein. And now we start making the links that we need. So the major links in this case came from the prostitute Jessica, who now introduces Brian Wells to this group of people, including Ken Barnes and Marjorie Gill Armstrong. And this connection is all coming, like you said, two years later. So everything was put on pause while Marjorie was being restored to competence. And when you mentioned before, you said, you know, she obviously knew the system. It was because of those priors that you then subsequently mentioned, correct? And I know that you've argued in the past that while it seems at the time or might seem like a massive inconvenience or just a, a sort of unacceptable delay, the reality is potentially it prevented an appeal. Do you still feel that way, given the, the scrupulous nature by which the state and the feds proceeded with her? It ensured that nothing was overturned, even though some might argue, as you said, seven to 12 years seems light. I perfectly agree with that 100 percent that the judges, both on the state level and the federal level, Judge McLaughlin was the U.S. District Court judge here that took over our case. They both declared her incompetent independently of each other. And I, I couldn't agree more that they did because it did exactly what you said. It, it helped us avoid any appellate issue later that she was incompetent or, you know, used it as a defense, a not guilty reason of insanity charge or something. But it certainly helped us. And we were, you know, maybe disappointed a little that it took the, the delay but looking back, it was the absolute right thing to do. So now in 2005, it's two years later, you're realizing these big players are now connected and you're realizing how. Still outstanding is the overdosed pizza delivery driver, the second one. And then what happens when you either arrive to Ken Burns' house or what happens after you've made that larger overlay connection between these individuals? Yeah, so now we're starting to really, we're, we're honing in. You know, Special Agent Jason Wick from ATF, who was their agent, it, and I really, along with the Pennsylvania State Police, we, we really now could focus. Because, you know, when you initially have these cases, we might have had 75 agents and, and officers working leads in the initial three, four, five months that are going on. And I'm telling you, it's, 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 it's you have a 1-800 number, you have a $100,000 reward, you have lot of things going on and it's generating a lot of leads but when you can delve in and now really focus on 
names and, and people that you're looking at, we were able to really get into detail. And that's where we started going back and talking. And we started interviewing Ken Barnes. And Ken Barnes was saying, I don't know anything about anything. So he started out with that too, like they all did. And as we started to present them more and more questions involving what our knowledge is from each other, because Marjorie tries to start cooperating, but not as a co-defendant, as somebody that might have been a witness to an unknown event. So she's trying to tell me, well, yeah, I was at the site where the call was made, uh, ordering the pizzas, or I was at the site where they put the bomb around Brian's neck, or I was at the site watching the bank it rob, but I didn't know why I was there. Bill Rothstein just told me to be there. And it wasn't making sense to anybody but her. So she was trying to cooperate, but she was actually hurting herself. And then Ken Barnes, we would start to compare her story with his story. And it really became an interviewing, uh, an interrogation case. And then comparing that and corroborating with some forensic science that we would gather, we started really piecing this thing together. We also didn't mention that there was a known fugitive uh, from the state of Washington who was wanted for raping uh, an intellectually challenged young female by the name of Floyd Stockton, mm -hmm. who was living in Rothstein's house at the time that this all happened. And uh, Rothstein actually told us about him. He, Stockton, had left after the bomb went off and was hiding in Erie. So after Rothstein turned in the body on the 21st of September, we found Stockton hiding as a fugitive. It took us about five days, but we found him, tracked him down, and we started interviewing him. Now, again, he didn't know anything about anything. Soon as we start piecing it together, he now becomes a major witness to the case, and he starts telling us. So independently, Marjorie, Ken Barnes, and Floyd Stockton all start telling us what happened in the case. And all were saying the same story. Bill Rothstein, believe it or not, in July of 04, so that's just months after the whole case happened, he's in the hospital. And I heard he was in the hospital. And I said, I got to go see him. So, you know, as a represented guy, right, he was already represented for, uh, you know, his, he was actually being charged with abuse of corpse for helping Marjorie move the body. Yeah. So he was under, you know, his attorney. So I call his attorney and I say, hey, can you go to the hospital, meet me? I'd like to interview Bill. We get in the hospital room. This is another one of those scenes I'll never forget. And it's a true thing. We're standing there, the district attorney, myself, and the, and the defense attorney. And I look at Bill and he is really looking very bad. And I thought, you know, I watched my father uh, pass of cancer and, uh, that's still sad for me. I'm sorry. And Bill was in that state that I used to see my father. And I thought, you know what? I'm going at this. I said, Bill, don't take this with you. Cleanse your soul. You know, tell me that Wells and Roden are related. Just tell me. And I'll never forget. He lifts his arm out of the bed and he goes, makes this big no. He draws a no with it. And four days later, he was dead. So, we didn't have Bill Rothstein anymore as a witness. So I was really dependent on, that's why it took from 05 to 07 to get enough information. And by the way, all that time I'm presenting to the grand jury. 
So every chance I got, they throw me into the grand jury with more and more information on what we're piecing together. Finally, in July of 2007, we have enough for a true bill indictment of Marjorie Deal Armstrong and Ken Barnes for the whole pizza bomber case. Unindicted co-conspirator Bill Rothstein, unindicted co-conspirator, unfortunately, James Roden, unindicted co-conspirator Brian Wells, which was really the shocker to everybody. Quick question. Did Rothstein know he had terminal cancer when he executed this plan? Because part of me feels like he he would because he he's like, doesn't matter if I go to jail. But then part of me thinks no, because he wouldn't enjoy the fruits of it, which would have been the 250K. And then the other question is, did he truly believe Rodin wasn't related? Like he thought of that homicide. Yes, it was because Rodin was like, Marjorie, I'm going to tell. But maybe in Rothstein's head, he was like, that was just them arguing. Like that was her deal. You know, it wasn't part of this. Like he meaning that that cleansing response to him was truthful. Yeah. So there there. Wow. There's several good things in there. So he 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 actually had cancer. It was a lymphoma and he was in remission and he was doing fine. So he, he had actually thought he beat it. But I think before this thing happened, he had received news that it had come back. Now I think he had longer. He thought he had longer to live, but I think he knew that he was back in cancer. So to answer your first question, I thought he knew and was going to create the perfect crime and go out with this big whodunit. And so he wouldn't give me the satisfaction of telling me they were related. He wasn't gonna tell, and when I went to Marjorie, I said, Marjorie, tell me why Bill was saying they're not related. And she's saying, ah, that's, I mean, I could throw in a slew of curse words in there, but that's that's bullshit. He absolutely would never let you have the satisfaction He wanted this to be the perfect crime. So she solidified in my mind that he knew he was probably dying. Mm. And he knew that Roden was involved in the case. And he knew she killed him because he was going to go to the police. But he was upset that she did it. He thought, why would you do that? He's not going to go to the police. He's part of this too. So he was sort of mad at her for doing it. And what became so interesting with this group of I call them, and and these are, by the way, self-proclaimed fractured intellectuals, they called themselves. Mm. They were all like-minded with this bad intent for this scheme. They got together and had meetings and such. Marjorie and Bill were really trying to get that body disposed of after she did it. Bill was upset that she did it, but he ended up losing his nerve. And that's why he called us to say, hey, it's in my freezer go arrest her. He was really taking a chance that she wouldn't tell us that he was involved in the pizza bomber because he knew, but here's what happened. He thought because he wasn't moving fast enough, she was going to kill him for not moving fast enough. So Rothstein was even paranoid of Marjorie Deal Armstrong because he told Stockton, he said, hey, I'm going to meet Marjorie. If I'm not back in 15 minutes, she killed me. So even he was nervous she was going to kill him 
So that's why he finally said, I'm, I'm just going to call the police and take my chances that she doesn't turn me in. We'll be right back with more of this story. So you've laid out who the co-conspirators are, who the unindicted co-conspirators are, who the, you know, the, the main players are. So break down what happened, the, the truth behind the pizza bomber as you then determined. Absolutely. The, the pizza bomber, it just sort of always bothered me because it was a horribly planned bank robbery. It was well overthought of, well overcooked. You know, why would you have a guy rob a bank, get the money, and then go on a series of stops with the money in the car? Makes no sense, right? He could get pulled over at any time, and then you lose the money. So the real plan was to have Brian Wells rob the bank, Bill Rothstein would be right outside of the bank. When he came out, he'd give Bill Rothstein the money and then go on the stocks. And Bill Rothstein thought, wherever that thing blows up, he's dead, no problem, he's no witness, I have the money, we're done. But what happened was, remember my 911 caller, Rothstein couldn't get close enough to Wells to get the money because he saw the guy on the phone. So the money stayed in the car and that's why we recovered the money. By the way, he only got $8,207. So he was well short of the two fifty. But if you look at this plot, really overcooked, really overplanned. Remember when I told you the content and context of the notes? What BAU said was, look at these notes. They're typed and they're traced. And inside the notes, there were three misspelled words. Restaurant which I still can't spell really well. <laughs> Who can? Yeah. U-A, yeah, A-U. <laughs> How many vowels? Too many. That's okay. right. Too many vowels. <laughs> Restaurant was misspelled. The word during had two R's, D-U-R-R-I-N-G. And the word course was spelled like courses in sandpaper, not course that you take a, you know, drive this course. Okay. So they said, whoever you get as a suspect, make them spell those three words. <laughs> So because I didn't want them to know what words we were doing, I made up a sentence. And I said, during the course of the day, we went to the restaurant for lunch. And I'd have the any suspect I write or, or, or would interview, have them write that, that sentence. And it was really sort of interesting. The other thing that I found in the notes that they thought was very useful, if you're from Erie, you know the term Upper Peach. Nobody knows. Peach Street's a main road here. It's like the main road in the city. And if you live here, you know the term Upper Peach means south of the highway. And that's where they wrote in the note, go to Upper Peach. So we knew it was a localized group of people that had done this because they had come to know that term. So those are the things about the contents and content that I told you was so great about BAU. I loved working with them and have some really good friends from there out of that. Um, did anyone fail the, you know, I buy seashells by the seashore or whatever <laughs> during the course of the day I eat lunch at a restaurant? Did, yeah. did anyone, did Bill fail, fail that? Bill never got to take. Oh, the, right. Uh, Cause he died. Yes. Uh, so he never got Bill. And Marjorie, uh, she was smart enough right. to know uh, that something in that was interesting to us. Right. Uh, by the way, we had to get hair and fiber from her and, and we had to get a subpoena and, she did, denied the subpoena and she was always a challenge every time. But I had her in the car multiple times 
where we drove her to the sites. We actually went to the sites because we had two witnesses that saw her driving on the highway the day of the bank robbery going the wrong direction. If you can imagine a major like I-95 or someone going in the wrong direction. On the highway? On the highway. And that was Marjorie Deal Armstrong <laughs> going the wrong way, trying to get to. Remember I told you that that one site had yeah. someone had got to. She got to that site. And, and somehow evaded being pulled over for felony reckless driving. But OK. That, so, that. yeah. And then the, the verbiage is interesting. Do you remember that quiz that we all took on the Internet? I feel like, I don't know, maybe five or ten years ago where it asked you to select the words that you used to describe certain things like the space of grass in between the road and a driveway or a sidewalk. Oh, yeah. Like, what do you call that? And then based on the answers to those, all of those seemingly yeah. random questions, it pinpointed where you grew up to the most specific. I mean, we're talking zip codes, which was fascinating. And then upon analysis of the results, it told you what the, you know, what, what it was that did it. And it was interesting because I remember when I took it, it was wrong, but it was because I'm the product of where my parents grew up and I use words that they used. So it reflected where they had grown up and why. Yeah. So it was sort of an amalgam rather than, you know, the the 90% slang and overuse of the word hella, which is indicative of where I grew up, which is the Bay Area. We digress. So uh, now you are back to... <laughs> to yeah. Marjorie, you're back to the BAU results, and then what happens? So once we piece together that Jessica had introduced Brian Wells to these people, we started figuring out that they had a plan. And this was the interesting part, that Marjorie Deal, and this is really the crux. And by the way, my key piece of evidence, actually, besides getting the link from the, the prostitute, we had a UPS driver going by the Shell station at 1.30 on August 28, 2003, and saw Bill Rothstein and Marjorie Deal Armstrong at the payphone that ordered the pizzas. Oh I mean, gosh, that to me was like, you know, the biggest thing that could ever happen to me um, as far as a piece of evidence. Well, I have to say, yeah. that's why I'm surprised the grand jury... Like, that's my unfinished thing is that you, you continued presenting to the grand jury. I'm surprised it took so long for them to return, yes, an indictment, given that you had those pieces of evidence that seem well beyond circumstantial. You know, it's funny because investigators all think we, you know, could prosecute cases, but we can't, obviously, because we're not lawyers. But we do feel a lot of times that we have enough evidence. My assistant United States attorney in AUSA, Marshall Pichinetti, who's now a judge, by the way, in the state court, um, he kept saying, listen, this is fantastic. Bring me this. Bring me this. Bring me this. Keep putting this together. Pre keep it that He was just so thorough. And to his credit, you know, that's what had Marjorie Deal Armstrong in a three-week trial convince a jury with beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, he, he, was, he was fantastic in what he did. He was very deliberate, however, and he would say, Please continue to bring me more. So that's what we did, and, and we kept piling it on. But when you look at it, Marge, as, as, as the evidence in this case, the whole crux of the pizza bomber case was this. Marjorie Deal Armstrong was an only child. Her father had about $2 million. 
and she wanted it and she wanted it now. So she went to Ken Barnes and a bunch of other people and said, can you kill my father? Cause I want my inheritance and I want it now. So Ken Barnes, who's a nice guy, right? My crack dealer who Jessica used to go uh, buy crack from, he said, yeah, I'll kill your father, but I need 250,000 down. And that was the crux of this case. Rob the bank to get 250, which they asked for in the notes to pay Ken Barnes to kill her father, to get the inheritance. And it was all greed. It was all greed about money and power and control over another human. And one thing I got to say before I, I, I ever forget, three people died in a horrific way. And three family members are, are, are not there for their family, I should say. But I got to say, I never lost sight of the fact that there were victims in this case. Whether Brian Wells cooperated or not was always the debate. Unfortunately, he cooperated with people that tricked him. They told him, Brian, if you rob the bank and you wear a fake device, if you get caught, you're a hostage. If you don't get caught, we'll take it off you and we'll give you $5,000. So he agreed to rob the bank, get the money, but never believed it to be real. And that's why he acted like Charlie Chaplin in the bank, according to the witnesses, swinging a cane, because he had a cane gun with him. And I always thought, why would you give the guy a cane gun when he has a bomb around his neck? And then later, Ken Barnes told me, well, if they didn't believe the bomb was real in the bank to give him the money, he's to raise the cane and rob the bank with the cane gun. So that's why they gave him a cane gun. So there started to be things that fit that Brian Wells cooperated. What about the story I initially told you that he told us about the black people who shot at him and put the collar on his neck? That was totally fiction. It was totally made up. And there were no African-American people in this case. So the fact that he stuck with the story, right, aggravated his circumstance versus mitigating his circumstance by saying, oh, it was Bill Rothstein, it was Marjorie Deal and Ken Barnes, they did this to me. He could have ended this that day when we were talking to him, right? Because we were talking to him. Why not tell us who did it? So he stuck with the story, again, which corroborates the fact that he was a participant. Didn't know he was going to die until he heard the faint beep, beep, beep in the turn and then stuck with the story. And so it, it was sad and his family still doesn't necessarily want to believe that. But if you went to the trial three weeks and the evidence presented at trial, including Ken Barnes saying Brian Will was completely involved, Marjorie Deal, who said he was completely involved, people who saw Brian Wells leave the tower site the day before the bank robbery, they had a pre-planning meeting. So he was at the tower site the day before. So all those indicators indicate he was involved. He was tricked and he died and he was killed. And as you know, um, you know, conspiracy is an inchoate crime. So you can always sort of reverse it. You can always remove, remand yourself from being liable if you take a step back 
or right, you sort of erase your involvement. Clearly, he didn't because he robbed the bank. But it's my understanding that that day when he did meet with them, that he did voice an objection. And at the very end, it was my understanding someone had reported that they ultimately had to beat him and forcibly put the collar on him. And sort of in, it's, eventually he succumbed and clearly stayed with that original plan to your point about aggravating. But is that true? Did someone report that he actually did try to pull out? Absolutely true. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because it is germane to what he did that day. When he showed up the day before, they didn't show him what the bomb was going to look like. When he showed up that day with the two pizzas getting ready for the actual robbing of the bank and they pull it out of the back of a van, which was Rothstein's van, and they say, here, we're going to put this on. And he looked at it and he goes, no, that's too real. I don't want to I don't want to do that. And they actually shot it, shot into the air. Rothstein fired a gun into the air. Ken Barnes admittedly punched him, knocked him to the ground. He had dirt on his knees, like in the picture we had of him in the bank everything matches and they put it around his neck and they say it's not real it's it's not going to go off go rob the bank and stick to this story we gave you so to his credit he did try to back out that day mm-hmm. but then aggravating his circumstance again yeah. was the fact that he did follow through with it. right so, and now let's go to Marjorie, who is like this killer Veruca Salt. I want it now, horribly. Um, right. What share, if it's $2 million, and let's ignore taxes for a second, because apparently that doesn't factor into the equation. $2 million inheritance, you know, allegedly. 250 of that goes to the, Ken Barnes. The, the Wells. Yeah, well, 250 I mean, goes Barnes. to Barnes. Five, just yeah. 5,000 goes 5, to 000. Wells. How much was supposed to go to Rothstein? And what was the connection of um, her her boyfriend that she shot and then the Stockton, the vigilante, like fugitive? So uh, essentially, how much were they expecting too? Because that's not that's not a lot of money and certainly no amount of money is worth, um, you know, killing your family member. But No, that's a great point. So what would happen was Wells was going to get 250 for killing the father. And his participation, Wells was getting five thousand. Here's another thing that sort of wraps up, uh, or or at least circles back. Panetti, the second right. pizza delivery driver, he was getting five thousand to make sure Wells kept cooperating. So he was sort of Wells's pusher to mm-hmm. say, "Hey, you're going to be okay." And he was Panetti was actually at the tower site when they put the bomb around Brian Wells' neck. Mm-hmm. So he was going to get five thousand. Um, Rothstein was going to get two hundred and fifty thousand because he was losing his house, and so his house had a sign on it for sale, and it was for sale for two hundred fifty. So he needed two hundred fifty to get his house back so he could buy it, and then they were going to pay menial amounts to Floyd Stockton. So the rest was going to be Marjorie. And Marjorie was a hoarder of everything that she had, including money. And so she just would have had that money and done whatever she would have done with it naturally. And she just had no compassion for her father. I remember having to go interview her father, Harold Deal, and say, Mr. Deal, I need to tell you that your daughter was trying to hire someone to kill you. And that's got to be one of the hardest things you can tell a parent, right? Your own child is trying to kill you 
or have you killed? And he said, I always knew, here was his answer. It was sort of interesting to me. He said, I always knew she was a bad seed. So I don't know what he meant by that. And I never really needed to delve in too much about it. But he gave away all that money, by the way, to all his neighbors and anybody who was around him. And she never got any money out of it. Don't you think he meant that movie and the book, The Bad Seed from like the 50s? I mean, I'm not saying he was saying that it was genetic per se, but that's the whole premise that some people are born that way. And I was wondering, I've been wondering this whole time because her initial acquittal um, based on battered woman syndrome, I was wondering because it seemed like I shouldn't. I was wondering if you believed it, if you felt that was a justifiable and an inaccurate acquittal. Obviously, we trust our juries, but it seemed as if maybe there was some skepticism and I wondered if then perhaps her circumstance had dictated her, set the course of her behavior from then. And then I was like, well, maybe it happened earlier or whatever. And then hearing that from her father, or maybe she was just born like that. No, it, it, it's interesting because if, if anybody from, from here that followed that first trial of hers, even her attorney was convinced she was guilty and was, he, I remember, I remember him. He, I think he had even left town or something thinking, all right, I don't even want to wait for the verdict. I already know. Um, so when that came back the way it did, everybody was in complete shock because she shot him just like she did Roden. She shot him six times while he was sleeping on the couch. Now, I'm not saying he was a great guy and that there wasn't some abuse going back and forth in that relationship because there probably was. But the fact that she shot him you know, in a situation like that, where he was, you know, literally sleeping, it always made everybody wonder what was what what that acquittal was about. Uh, just um, and what also is interesting to me is the notion that this narcissist that you had in Rostein was still at the behest of essentially the Black Widow. That everyone is ultimately afraid of, you know, the woman with all the power. Um, Very true. This case so complex, so fascinating. So tragic for those lost lives and for those tricked individuals and uh, all because of greed, which is just terrible. How did it impact the community? This is where you're from and, and where you you're a professor and a law enforcement agent there and the like. And it's not it seems so uncharacteristic of what is otherwise a really lovely place to exist. Thank you for mentioning that. And when I speak about this case anywhere or try to do any shows, national shows or whatever, I, I really want to put out that Erie is a fantastic place. I love it. I could have gone anywhere in the world through the FBI, and I did. I was all over the world. I did things in different countries and work cases everywhere. I wanted to come back to Pittsburgh Division Erie RA. I mean, I loved Erie. It was my home where I was born and raised. And I wanted to come home here. And so I, I remember the FBI saying, oh, my God, you could go anywhere. You know, you could do anything. Why do you want to go there? And I'd say, well, it's, you know, it's home for me. And I and I and I love it. And they said, well, then that's where you'll be. But I remember thinking to myself, I hit the lottery when I got back here and I had worked violent crime my whole career. And I thought, Oh, Erie's going to be nice and quiet, you know, compared to, I mean, in, you know, Philadelphia and Cleveland and Dayton, Ohio and uh, Cincinnati and, and Pittsburgh. And, 
you know, eerie, you know, this is, and then 2003, August 28th hit and my whole life changed. My whole life changed along with the people who obviously were victim in this case. So to answer your question, Erie is a fantastic place. And I'm so glad that it was an Erie agent assigned here that got it because I knew Erie. I knew some people here. It just was easier to deal with. I wasn't going to get transferred to another place during the course of it. It just was fortuitous in a way that I, I happened to get it. And I'm just so proud of the team that we put together that solved it because we could have given up at any period of time in this thing and we just wouldn't do it. What is your biggest takeaway from this case, personally or professionally? You know, I think that the, the, the biggest takeaway that I got from it was you never give up, right? You never on anything that you're doing in life, you know, uh, you have a chance to take an easier route maybe or a simpler way to go in, in, in anything you do in life. But it's not always the best. And, and so I, I, I think that personally this took a toll on my family. Mm. It took a toll on anybody that was involved in it physically. Very challenging for a number of us in it to this day. Um, but at the same time, that's what you signed up to do. And that's what you work to do. The pressure of it was an enormous. Do you realize, Emily, this was labeled a major case for the FBI? So major case 203. If you look at major cases in the history, you know, with Lindbergh being the first major case mm. of the FBI, major case 117, Tim McVeigh, uh, mm. major case 130, Eric Rudolph, wow. major case 184, the Twin Towers oh. and Pentagon and 9-11, and then major case 203, because we didn't know what we had. We didn't know if it was going to happen a week from today, a month from today, a year from today, and some other city, some other, you know, that we had a terrorist organization. So the fact that this was that big a deal and, and, and that we were able to persevere, I mean, the highest levels of our government, from the director of the FBI, probably even to the president, were being briefed on this, this case. And I know that for a fact because I was writing urgent um, reports for it. And when I think about that, I go, oh, wow, that pressure was intense. And so it wore on everybody that was involved in it. But our system works. And that's the other thing I took away from it. If you, you know, follow the system, never give up with it, and go through the process in the correct manner, integrity first, right? Follow the evidence and get to the truth. It, it works. And I was proud of our system, too, that, that criminal justice actually got to the bottom of people involved in such a heinous crime. So given the major crimes designation, number 203, this is your hometown, how, how long it took to get through it with that two-year delay. And so what did that closure and what did the convictions feel like for you? You know, <laughs> I think we wrote in the book, um, and I had to have a writer because I just couldn't get out of in my mind what was, you know, I'm not, and I was a law enforcement guy, Emily, you know, I, I never planned on, you know, doing shows or talking about it or writing a book. You know, I just liked solving puzzles. I liked solving crime. I loved interviewing. I loved interrogating. I loved thinking of why people do forensic psychology and the whole thing. 
So for me, this was so out of my element, so out of it. And so the day we had Marjorie's trial, three weeks long it was, the day we had the results and the guilty conviction um, by a jury of her peers, my family all went to this restaurant and, um, you know, my brothers and my sister, my mom and my dad and my wife and my kids. And, and I'll never forget it. Um, somebody said, Hey, say something. And I swear to God, I stood up and I just lost it. I just lost it. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, what a, I don't know. You're not supposed to do that. You know, you're an FBI you're an FBI agent. You've seen every kind of way you can die. I've seen everything being on a violent crime squad. And I stood up and I lost it. And I just, my whole family just was, I'm going to lose it again. Actually, my whole family was just there. And um, it was, it's, it's tough. It's a challenge in your perseverance and your persistence, but your faith and your belief in, in, like I said, the system gets you through. And, and that's what helped us get to the end. There, I'm, I can't imagine the tremendous amount of pressure um, on your shoulders that was also absorbed and held up by the members of your team and everyone in law enforcement who worked tirelessly for those years. Absolutely that team effort. But for you, I can imagine that moment was a release and a recognition and an appreciation of the fact that that responsibility had been met and that you had absolutely fulfilled your duty um, and then some. And that closure for the Erie community, for your family, for the families of those victims is priceless. I'm so grateful for your service. They're so grateful for that closure and for that amazing, amazing fulfillment of duty that you showed. Thank you, Jerry Clark, for being with us today. Thank you for this incredible story and your incredible service in and out of uniform. Thank you. Emily, I can't thank you enough. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. And um, I'm just so grateful that you're putting it out there that we work so hard in law enforcement. I know you're a big supporter of law enforcement. Yeah. So that's what keeps us every day doing our thing and being safe in our community. So thank you so much for your time. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.